Welcome to the Pinebridge Investments Podcast. I'm Hedda Barron, Content Manager for Asia at Pinebridge. Today we'll discuss Asia investment grade bonds, a trillion dollar market that is attracting rising interest from global investors. Our guest, Omar Slim, Senior Portfolio Manager, Fixed Income based in Singapore, will help us understand what drives this market, how to navigate opportunities and risks, as well as the latest trends impacting the market. Welcome, Omar. It's good to be here, Heather. Thank you. Let's start with an overview of Asia Investment Grade, or Asia IG. How does the Asia IG universe compare with US or Europe IG? And how has this market performed in the past? I think the first thing to mention is that when we talk about Asia IG in this particular context, we are talking about the US dollar denominated market. As you know, within Asia, there are local currency markets as well as US dollar markets. So in this particular context, we're referring to the US dollar denominated market. So that market in terms of size, it's smaller than the US or the European market, although it is a quite a large market with the market cap higher than 1 trillion, so about 1.1 trillion, a bit less than that now. This is a market that has been growing steadily over the past few years. So we get about $250 billion of gross supply a year. In terms of the composition of the market, unsurprisingly, China has a large weight in it, given its large weighting within the region. So China represents about half of the market, or more precisely, about 49%. The other Asian countries that are very well represented include Indonesia, Korea, India, Philippines, Singapore. Malaysia, and Thailand. In terms of the industries, this market is dominated by three really large segments. The first one would be the financials, so in particular, the banks. The second would be the sovereign bonds. And in particular here, we have issuance from Indonesia as well as the Philippines. We do have some issuance from other countries such as China and Korea, except that they tend to issue much less frequently And the third segment would be what we call the quasi-sovereign, the government-related entities. That's really a particularity of this market where we have quite a few government-related entities that are frequent and large issuers, including from China, but also other markets such as Indonesia, India, Philippines, Singapore, and, and other markets as well. The average rating of the market is single A minus, and this has been steady over the past few years. In terms of the market performance, this market has been performing quite well in the past few years, particularly when one looks at risk-adjusted performance. So the volatility of this market has been quite subdued. And that has been interesting to watch, in particular given the fact that this market has been tested over the past few years, whether it's external shocks, essentially monetary policy shocks from outside of Asia or unforeseen events or certain political tensions that, for instance, led to trade tensions between the U.S. and China or some of the internal shocks within the market, for instance, some of the volatility that we're seeing in terms of the real estate market. But throughout these shocks, one of the things that we have 
seen and we think this will continue to be the case is that this market has had volatility, which is relatively quite subdued. So what makes this asset class attractive? Yield-wise, for instance, how does it compare? I think there's a few things that jump out, essentially. The first one is, as you allude in your question, from a valuation perspective, this market, particularly when compared to other similar markets, so for instance, the USIG market, so same currency, same kind of credit quality, this market has slightly better yields. But importantly, uh, it has this yield differential with much lower duration. And this is important, particularly in an environment where we see rising rates. So duration, for instance, for the Asia IG market is about five, five and a half years. For the USIG market, it tends to be higher than eight years. So essentially, there's a market that has more interesting valuations while being less interest rate sensitive. And I think this is quite interesting as a feature for this market. The second thing which I would highlight is what we broadly call technical factors. And this is something that's not often discussed, but we think it's a very important anchor for this market, which might explain at least partially the volatility, which has been relatively low. And this is the fact that this market is essentially seeing supply, but from a net supply perspective, so essentially it would be gross supply minus the coupon payments and the maturing bonds, it has been relatively low. So essentially we have a region that has a home bias. So essentially a lot of the Asian buyers have a home bias in terms of trying to purchase Asian bonds. And a growing money pool that's chasing supply, which is relatively limited. And this is essentially a strong anchor for the market. And we think that this dynamic will continue for the foreseeable future, which has an impact on the volatility of this asset class. Now, how are you currently positioned in this market? Given the focus on monetary tightening and rate hikes, how do you mitigate such risks? And where are the best opportunities? Right. So on your first question, the market itself has a lower duration. So essentially, it is less sensitive to interest rate risk. It's not not sensitive to interest rate risk. It is, but less so than some of the other markets. In addition to that, we try to manage duration through a number of tools, whether it's the bond selection or through U.S. Treasury futures and other tools where our strategies allow us to do so, and most of them do. And this would be a good hedge, given that it's U.S. dollar denominator, trades of the U.S. Treasury. So this is essentially a clean hedge. Right now, for instance, we have been cautious on duration because of the dynamic that you've described. In terms of the opportunities, we do see opportunities, particularly within the corporate credit space. And it tends to be very uh, bottoms up in terms of the research that we do. So it's harder to have a kind of broad brush statement in terms of what we like in terms of countries or industries. But broadly, we like some of the large financials within Asia. We like some of the government-related entities that have interesting evaluation. We are more cautious on certain segments within the Chinese space, and we have been for a while, particularly given some of the changes in terms of the Chinese policy. And we like certain names within the Indian space that have been benefiting from positive fundamental trends. So earlier, you mentioned some attractive features of the asset class, such as yield, technicals, 
strong demand that underpins the market, but the foreign ownership of Asia bonds in general is still relatively low. What do you think are the common hurdles, and how can those be overcome? Sure, that's a good question. So again, I would like to differentiate here between the ownership of the local currency market and the ownership for the hard currency market or the market that we're referring to here. So if we're talking about the U.S. dollar market, the ownership is relatively low. So on average, I would say it's between a quarter to one third foreign-owned or non-Asia-owned. And there's a few reasons for that. One of which is the fact that Asian buyers are dominating deals. So it's not a lack of desire to be included in those deals. It's just that the fact that a lot of the interest is being overwhelmed by Asian buyers. So, for instance, just to give you an example, and without getting overly technical, so there are certain quite a few Asia-based issuers that don't really need to go, for instance, into the U.S. market or what we call the 144A market. So they stay within the what we call the Reg S market, which is essentially targeting the non-U.S. based investors because they feel that they could essentially issue what they need without going into the U.S. market, which has additional regulation requirements and so on. So that's one important factor. The other factor is that the non-Asian investors are still exploring Asia. Increasingly so, in the sense that more of the non-Asian investors, particularly out of Europe, are um, exploring Asia and are allocating into Asia. And I think this is one of the trends that we've been seeing. But it's not as prevalent as perhaps it could be. So one of the things that we have seen is for the global investors that do not want to have local currency risk or to have a lower credit quality allocation. The Asia IG market is a natural and kind of easy first step for them to make. You mentioned that China is a key component in the market. Markets have been watching closely the developments there, especially after the regulatory changes late last year, the credit troubles, and the possibility of an economic slowdown this year. How would these developments impact Asia IG? It has a large impact on Asia IG, perhaps not as large as the Asia high yield market, but it does have a large impact on Asia IG, and particularly given not only the weight of China in the in the market, but the impact that China broadly has on the region. I would say two things. One, in particular, for investing in China, one really needs to understand. The direction of policy. Understanding policy is key in investing in China, even more so than, for instance, having an opinion on whether the GDP growth will be five percent or five point five percent, and going into the the details of this. We, we we think that it's really policy that drives the market's performance, as opposed to kind of the integrity of the economic data. Given how Present the government and government-related entities are in the Chinese economy. So it is critical to understand the direction of Chinese policy and invest accordingly. So the second thing I would say is that there has been an important shift in terms of Chinese policy. This is something that the Chinese policymakers have been consistently saying, and they've more recently been putting into action. And this is that the Chinese sovereign support. Will be at the very least less forthcoming in terms of trying to bail out Chinese issuers or all of the Chinese issuers or Chinese companies. 
So this has important ramifications, in particular for the Asia high-yield segment, but also for the Asia IG segment. It is important to integrate it firmly into one's investment thesis. Otherwise, the investor should no longer invest thinking that everything is going to be built out by the Chinese government. So, for instance, there are certain segments that the Chinese policy makers are supportive of, others that are, they are less supportive of. And that is something that we have integrated in terms of our positioning. We have been a bit more cautious in terms of China. So we have right now an underweight in terms of China and our credit selection is actually quite selective in terms of the exposure that we take within China. So speaking of credit selection, can you walk us through your credit selection process? How much macro goes into your process versus bottom up? So our process has a simultaneous top-down decision-making process as well as a bottom-up for Asia IG. The credit selections tend to carry a larger weight in terms of driving alpha or driving outperformance. I would say it would be about one-third in terms of some of the macro positioning across the, the curve and about more than two-thirds in terms of credit selection. So credit selection is critically important and has been driving most of our the uh, performance for the strategies. And the credit selection process that we have, and this is a credit process that we take particular pride in, is essentially centered around having opinions across three dimensions, if you wish. The first one would be having an opinion in terms of fundamentals. The second one is on valuations, and the third on technicals. So on fundamentals, we have what we call the credit categorization, which our credit researchers essentially deliver. And this is a fundamental research-driven process. Essentially, the credit categorization is a reflection of the level of conviction that we have and the trend line of the credit metrics, as well as the visibility that we have in terms of the credit issuers. Evaluation is more of an opinion in terms of trying to assess value. So we have things such as relative value rankings across every bond. And then technicals are essentially factors that do have an impact in terms of bonds, but they couldn't be categorized as fundamentals of valuation. So these would be factors such as how broad is the investor base? Is it the bond that will go into a number of indices? Is it a bond that would be well traded? And so on and so forth. So Omar, you've been in Asia for more than a decade now. What do you think are the advantages of being a fixed income manager on the ground in Asia? I think being in Asia has its benefits. This is not to say that investing from outside of Asia is not feasible, but I think definitely being in Asia has its benefits. And this is a market that is now large enough to justify having on the ground presence. And this is certainly something that we have. So from the very basic, such as being in the same time zone to the more nuanced, which is essentially having researchers as well as people on the ground that speak the language are connected in terms of the local media, the local connection, the counterparties, as well as the ability to meet companies having what we call internally touch points. So this is essentially having a regular dialogue with issuers on the credit metrics, but also in terms of the engagement, particularly when it comes to ESG. I think these are things that are made much easier 
uh, being in Asia as opposed to being in other places. And I think more and more managers are realizing that. And I think given the market is large enough and growing, and in particular, given the fact that some of the global allocators are allocating what we think will be allocation that will be sticky, I think it's important to have that on the ground feel, on the ground research capabilities. Thank you, Omar, for this interesting discussion. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we hope that you will join us for future episodes of our podcast. For more economic and investing insights, please visit our website, pinebridge.com. Thank you.